have two words for you, predator drones. You will never see it coming. I think I'm joking. Drones are being used in drone strikes, and I support that entirely and feel the president was right. There's a reason why we shouldn't be using drones. It's because we don't just take out the target. We take out a lot of innocent civilians in these countries where these drones attack. But this is basically blowing up in our faces. We've seen the blowback all across the Middle East. What if our foreign policy of the past century is deeply flawed and has not served our national security interests? I hate categories. Categories okay if you're going to grocery store. But for me, the categories screwed a lot of people up. Make everything metal. Blacker than the blackest black times infinity. Radio, San Diego's source for heavy metal and other genres that are ignored by mainstream radio. San Diego's only libertarian talk show in a conservative-dominated market. More hard-hitting journalism than even the professionals themselves. Free Thought Radio, free speech, free expression, and free snowball. Only on KKSM Oceanside, AM 1320. The Radio Revolution. As it applies to you and me, our country isn't free. Welcome to Free Thought Radio, everybody. My name is Alex Fiddle here, the host every Monday, 6 to 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, freethoughtmedia.org and uh, facebook.com slash freethoughtradio. Uh, so March is Women's History Month. And since the government is trying to lump in women to selective service, uh, I think women should be very concerned about the government's foreign policy. Uh, my guest in the second hour is Barry Ladendorf of the San Diego Veterans for Peace. But in the first hour, um, my uh, I have a contributor to one of the largest uh, foreign policy news sites. Joining me now is John Glazer. He is the editor of antiwar.com. Welcome to the program, John. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, give us a brief history, uh, or, or give us a bit of background on yourself, the history of antiwar.com, and how you got involved as the current editor of the news site. Well, antiwar.com was started in 1995 in response to the Clinton administration's interventions in the Balkans. Um, Justin Raimondo and Eric Garris, two longtime writers and activists, uh, got together and got that domain name, which is very important. And the site's been trucking along ever since. We gained a lot of a lot more traction during the Iraq War, um, and uh, it's been good ever since. I'm a, I'm a new addition to the site. I've been around for about two years. Um, I previously did an internship at the Cato Institute. I was an editorial assistant at the American Conservative Magazine, and uh, that's pretty much about me. Given that antiwar.com primarily focuses on foreign policy and our intervention, uh, give us a brief history of the U.S.'s interventionism, uh, not just in the Middle East, but around the world. Sure. Well, uh with the exception of a few uh, relatively minor excursions into the imperial foreign policy prior to World War II, the United States really became a global power um, after World War II. We gained a strong military foothold throughout Europe 
and uh, uh, most of Asia, Asia Pacific. We, you know, World War II gave us military installations uh, spanning the globe, and they've been growing ever since. Um, uh, the primary purpose behind it is essentially hegemony. We want uh, dominance over other states. That's a measure of how powerful a government is, is how much sway and influence they have over other states. So when you see the United States propping up dictatorships in the Middle East, or when you see the United States uh, having military bases in places like South Korea or Japan, um, when you see throughout the uh, 20th century, really the whole 20th century, various interventions and coups and, and, and military installations in Central and Latin America, uh, these are a way to project power, and they feed the state, they feed the powerful interests in Washington, and, uh, you know, it gets more complicated when you start to talk specifics, mm -hmm. but that, that's the broad sense of it. Mm -hmm. uh, give us a history of non-interventionism in the U.S. and the U U.S.'s government's efforts to squash non-interventionist dissent and political activism. Well, you know... Uh, Non-interventionist sentiments go back a long way in, in the United States. I mean, it was James Madison who said that all, of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises the germ of every other problem, every other threat to liberty. Um, and, you know, we had a strong uh, uh, tradition in the founding of opposition to standing armies um, because of our experience being an imperial uh, colonial uh, issue with with Great Britain, um, and and you, you know you can see threads of that throughout uh, American history on both the left and the right. And what antiwar.com tries to do is bring those voices together. The uh, the staff of antiwar.com can aptly be described as libertarian. Uh, and that's where our non-interventionist foreign policy comes from. Uh, but there are anti-war vo voices on both the left and the right, and actually more and more so all the time. And so we try to bring those voices together. All right. Uh, so let's go ahead on to current news. Um, President Obama has pretty much started three new wars, even before his inauguration, that being Syria, Iran, and Mali. We, we have troops on the border uh, with, of Syria with, uh, in Turkey, uh, we egged France on in, to invade Mali with our assistance, and Iran is listed as a, an official threat in the 2013 National Defense Authorization Act. So throughout history, the, the CIA has engaged in covert operations to create opposition forces to governments the U.S. does not like, for example, Libya and Syria. So what, what is the U.S.'s role in supporting the Syrian rebels, and how is Syria and Mali a stepping stone for a war with Iran? Um, well, let's let's take Iran first because that's sort of uh, overwhelming. That's the overarching issue when it comes to the Middle East. Um, it, in, in American commentary on Iran, the context is almost always uh, subtracted from the conversation. You know, the context as Iranians understand it starts in 1953 when the U.S. cooperated with Britain. I mean, it was a CIA-orchestrated coup of a democratically elected government. Mohammed Mossadegh was the prime minister. He had um, inklings and uh, pressure to nationalize the oil industry, and that would have cut out Britain and the United States. 
uh, and they viewed that as unacceptable. So the CIA orchestrated a military coup, and that overthrew that government and installed the Shah, Mohammed Reza Shah, who was previously the king. Uh, they reinstalled him, and he ruled with uh, brutality and torture and repression for almost 30 years. And in 1979, the current Iranian government, uh, you know, was integral in a popular revolution. Now, the current Iranian government um, sees the current context. Uh, they, they, they look at a map of the Middle East, and they recognize that in the past few years, the United States has waged two, uh, two aggressive, unnecessary wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, we constantly flood the Persian Gulf directly to Iran's south with fleets of Navy warships. It's extremely provocative. Uh, we fund uh, you know, a team of, of various uh, states and countries uh, to Iran's north uh, and northeast that are antithetical to the government of Iran. Our two major allies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Israel, happen to be uh, Iran's most prominent enemies in the region. Um, and you know, we constantly have rhetoric in this country about regime change in Iran, bombing the Iranian government, um, uh, you know, uh, preventing them from having any domestically produced nuclear power, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, the creep towards war has been rather strong. Luckily, the Obama administration has been slightly uh, uh, weary of another conventional ground war in the Middle East. It recognizes the American people are very distasteful of another quagmire. It recognizes the context of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and so what they've chosen to do instead is to diplomatically bully Iran and impose harsh economic warfare. So currently, uh, Iran is faced with some of the most uh, severe uh, and savage economic sanctions uh, promoted by the United States. Uh, and they, harmly, they, they primarily harm the Iranian people uh, without doing much to the government. Um, and, and that's sort of where we are right now. Uh, we, it seems like the Obama administration is going to stick with sanctions um, and delay any sort of diplomatic breakthrough because uh, they have pressures domestically and from Israel not to. Um, but it's very easy for that situation to get much more ugly uh, and potentially result in a war. Um, so that's that's how Iran should be viewed. When it comes to Syria, you know, the conflict is portrayed primarily as a humanitarian catastrophe in which the Assad government is, you know, ruthlessly killing civilians in a, in a troubled civil war, uh, and that's mostly true. But it's also true that the Syrian opposition, the Syrian rebel fighters, um, uh, first of all, they don't represent the Syrian people. Um, not a majority of the Syrian, a slim majority of the Syrian people still supports this, the Assad government. Uh, furthermore, many foreign fighters from Iraq and from the Gulf Arab states have flooded into Syria to help fight uh, against the Assad regime in a plan to, you know, impose regime change. And many of these groups have ties to Al Qaeda, Jabhat al Nusra is a group that is a sort of fusion of all these foreign fighters along with a group that was once we invaded Iraq we called Al-Qaeda in Iraq and they're very 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 dangerous people 
Unfortunately, you know, to begin with, when this started year, you know, more than a year ago, uh, the United States was talking about uh, aid to the rebels. And while we have given lots of aid to the rebels, um, it's mostly the worst kind of hawks in Washington that are arguing for arming the rebels. The Obama administration, thankfully, has uh, stopped short of uh, arming the rebels, at least as far as we know, at least as far as you know what is public. Um, but uh, it, it, it's also standing by as our allies, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates uh, and Qatar and many others are arming and, and actively funding the Syrian opposition groups. Uh, and that could, that could, you know, the situation could get really, really bad. But one of the primary reasons the Obama administration has, you know, stepped back from a direct military action, like a no-fly zone or, you know, a, a military invasion or something like this, is because it's completely unworkable. I mean, first of all, the country, when you take out the Assad regime, there would be a power vacuum, and the country would descend into an even worse civil war than we've currently seen, something on the order of Iraq, in which about 600,000 people died. Um, so, uh, and then you'd have a problem of, okay, what comes next? You know, are these jihadist groups are going to uh, take hold of the government in Syria, or what's going to happen? Furthermore, if we do something like a limited military intervention, like a no-fly zone or something, uh, we'd have to take out the Assad regime's extensive anti-aircraft capabilities, uh, and that means bombing Syria. Unfortunately, the aircraft, the anti-aircraft capabilities are near urban areas, so we'd put further civilians at risk. Um, and there's no really, there's not really an end game. We'd have to go on this mission of, you know, another nation-building mission in, in the Middle East. And so the Obama administration doesn't really have the energy for that, nor do the American people. Um, but we still have to, you know, watch out for any limited interventions that are going on and, and, and be aware of that. Mm -hmm. and, and like you said, the, the U.S. is, is seemingly, seemingly okay with having jihadist religious police, al-Qaeda, and, and Libyan Syrian rebels that they back with the, you know, the purpose of fighting al-Qaeda in Syria and Libya. What's your take on this hypocrisy? Well, you know, on the one hand, it seems like the starkest hypocrisy that you could imagine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the United States government, unfortunately, has a long history of aiding jihadist groups. Uh, we, we aided the, you know, the first type of uh, modern jihadist group, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to oust the Soviets. Which became Al-Qaeda. Parts of those militants became Al-Qaeda. Parts of them became the Taliban. Parts of them disintegrated, but yes, uh, we helped in the in the formation of Bin Laden's group of militants. Uh, Bin Laden was a, a a hero of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the nineteen eighties, and then we saw the blowback of that in, in, in September eleventh. Also involved in that was the Saudi influenced export of Wahhabism. You know, this is the most extreme form of uh, uh, Islam that that takes it a, in, a, in a militant route. Um, and that we're seeing that yet again in places like Syria. And, you know, Al-Qaeda groups were also connected, as you said, to the groups in, to the rebel groups in Libya. The United States can't seem to control its insatiable need to intervene in every corner of the planet. Uh, and we end up getting ourselves into such trouble because uh, we can't 
really speak to those uh, unscrupulous terrorist groups that we end up uh, directly or indirectly helping. Mm -hmm. And for those just joining, I'm speaking with John Glazer. He's the editor of antiwar.com. Uh, so the U.S. media, for example, CNN, uh, does not often want to report on human rights abuses in countries that are, are um, supported by the U.S., for example, Bahrain or... Uh, the Israeli situation with West Bank and Gaza and uh, uh, other countries that were favorable towards, but at the same time they, you know, try to paint, you know, like a humanitarian crisis in Syria because we're not favorable towards them. Uh, unfortunately, that screws up a lot of people's narratives, not giving them the whole story. So, so let's go down the list of a few countries and discuss what human rights abuses are really uh, taking place, uh, starting with Bahrain. Right, so Bahrain is, uh, is an outgrowth of the Arab Spring that started in Tunisia and Egypt, um, and it has a ma majority Shiite population, uh, but the government is a monarchy, it's a Sunni-dominated Arab monarchy that is basically an arm of the Saudi government. Um, they have been ruthlessly repressing uh, pro-democracy movements in Bahrain for uh, since February of 2011, I think. Um, in February 2011, the Bahraini military, the, 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 the security forces, opened fire on uh, unarmed protesters um, and killed, you know, dozens of them. And when this hit the airwaves, um, you know, that was the beginning of Bahrain's attempt to keep their repression less obvious. So now... We're in a situation where the Bahraini government is using things like tear gas, but not just in the streets, you know, throwing tear canisters, tear gas canisters, which happen to be made by the United States government and wow. sent to them into homes, so into windows and into doors. People have died suffocating from the tear gas. That's just one tactic, though. There's also the tactic of, you know, uh, torture, systematic torture. Uh, UN investigations uh, recently have found that uh, in, in Bahraini prisons over the last year or two, uh, there has been systematic torture, uh, including, you know, electroshocking people and beating people and breaking limbs and, you know, uh, the, the worst kind of torture you can imagine. So this is what the Bahraini government is doing. At the same time, Barack Obama can get on stage in the inauguration and every previous speech he's ever made and claim that the United States is on the side of democracy and human rights and freedom and so forth. Uh, all the while, we are sending uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to the Bahraini government, helping to prop them up. We are sending uh, military aid and assistance, even as people are dying in the streets. Um, and so this is, again, this is one of the worst kind of hypocrisies that the United States engages in abroad. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly, uh, you know, uh, we can't promote democracy when we really have a, a two-party system, if not a one-party system in our own country. That's right. Uh, there, there's largely a bipartisan consensus on the issues of foreign policy. Uh, you know, the, 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 our main interest in Bahrain is the uh, Navy, the U.S. Navy's Fifth Fleet. The Fifth Fleet is one of the largest military installations in the region, in fact. Uh, that's where we, uh, you know, take our uh, aircraft carriers and our Navy warships and go along the Persian Gulf there uh, to patrol the area and ensure the flow of oil, quote-unquote. Um, this is a huge element of power projecting, power 
for projection like I was talking about earlier. And so it's extremely important to American interests. They, they view it. Uh, and there's a total Republican, Democrat, bipartisan consensus. Uh, and it virtually, as you say, seems to uh, represent a one-party system. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, when uh, I don't know if you've heard uh, when CNN investigative former CNN investigative journalist Amber Lyon tried to report on uh, this, uh, she got fired from CNN. That's right. Uh, you know, media organizations in the United States are huge conglomerates of uh, people that are. There's, there's a bit of a revolving door in the corporate world and in the government world. And uh, the, the major media organizations in the United States are a perfect representative example of that. Uh, and what you see in that kind of organization is not the kind of scrutinizing uh, uh, journalistic uh, skepticism of power and authority and you know, questioning uh, uh, dominant narratives and so forth. What you see is a lust for power. Uh, you see utmost respect and deference to a power. And so that means that any narratives that go against the power system, the power structure in Washington, uh, are, are largely kept out of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's move down to the, sec- the second uh, country I want to talk about uh, in, in regarding to that first main question, which is the I- Israeli and Palestinian situation. Uh, uh, go ahead and discuss a bit modern-day uh, uh, events going on with human rights abuses, whether that being the settlements, which is mass eminent domain, a la the Trail of Tears, or or annexing of Poland by Hitler, and certainly uh, recently, you know, students getting shot by Israeli defense forces uh, just for doing nothing. Right. So, you know, there's there's this odd tendency in the in the mainstream right now to to pretend like there's some sort of tension between the Obama administration and Israel, when in fact. Uh, we've never been more supportive. And in fact, the Israeli government has probably never been, at least for the past three decades, uh, more aggressive uh, and uncompromising towards the Palestinians. What we're seeing is an Israeli government that continues to eject Palestinians from their homes and, and create more refugees by the month. Uh, it also continues to build up Jewish settlements in, in Palestinian lands um, where those previous Palestinian homes were built uh, and increase the, the, the settler population in, in the West Bank has increased uh, to more than 310,000, um, which is a, a, a huge spike uh, of late. And, you know, the, the ultimate goal, uh, you know, is hardline Israelis call the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria. This is the Jewish uh, sort of Hebrew names for that part of what they think should be greater Israel. And Netanyahu and his Likud party are some of the most extreme right-wing types in Israel who want to, who dream of a one-state system. Um, The only problem is they're also racists. So they can't have a one-state system uh, because if they annex the West Bank, they're stuck with all these Arab Palestinians. And what they want to do is preserve the Jewish slash white nature of the Israeli state. And so, the, you know, they have the option of either continuing the military occupation or of, of uh, you know, annexing the West Bank, including the, the Palestinians in the Israeli state, 
but maintaining in, in an apartheid state where only Israeli Jews have full rights of citizenship and the Palestinian Arabs don't. I mean, this is the worst kind of abuse uh, that the United States is supporting in the Middle East. Uh, and that's only, um, I haven't even started on Gaza. You know, Gaza is, is a much worse humanitarian situation. Uh, it's been famously called the largest open-air prison because uh, the uh, air and naval blockade that Israel has imposed on uh, Gaza prevents, you know, easy flow of, you know, in and out. Um, people are basically trapped there, uh, and they haven't been able to sustain themselves because the borders are essentially closed and controlled by Israel. Mm -hmm. People there are significantly undernourished. Uh, people, you know, there's, uh, unemployment is absurdly high, something like 75% of people aren't working. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Israelis in the past few years have conducted uh, two major uh, uh, bombing campaigns in Gaza, uh, in which mostly civilians have been killed. Uh, their justification for this is that uh, the Hamas-led government uh, has uh, launched rockets into Israel. These are mostly in southern Israel. They, they kill a fraction of the amount of people that Israel kills, so there's no proportionality in the situation. Um, and they're also being constantly attacked uh, and shot at from over the border. And there's, you know, there's what, what uh, uh, Israelis call a no-go zone, which is like a three-mile radius around the Gaza Strip inside Palestinian territory that if anyone enters into, uh, the Israelis find it legitimate for themselves to shoot, uh, shoot and shoot to kill. This happens all the time to innocent farmers and, you know, 13-year-olds playing soccer and so forth. I mean, what's going on in both Gaza and the West Bank uh, is atrocious. Uh, they're all war crimes, essentially, and the United States is complicit in their uh, execution. Mm -hmm. And like you say, with the blockades, it's keeping out uh, goods and, and, and uh, food and water, and that uh, brings me back to that Frederick Bastiat quote. When goods don't cross uh, uh, borders, soldiers do. You know, it's 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 kind of a, a a form of torture. You know, keeping people from having the food that their you know uh, population demands. You know, via free trade. But we don't have that. We have a prison. That's right. Uh, in international law, they call that collective punishment. That is to say, you collectively punish a large portion of the population, if not all of it, uh, for something that they have no control over. Uh, which is, you know, various militant groups uh, sometimes uh, throwing rockets over over the. Um, it, it's uh, it's some it's a tactic that Hitler was very good uh, at executing, and the Israelis unfortunately have taken him up on that. Mm -hmm. uh, let's move on to Tunisia. Uh, going back to that same question. Right. So Tunisia was the sort of birthplace of the Arab Spring, and it's very much like uh, Bahrain, uh, although the revolution ended up being successful, primarily because Tunisia is a marginal country in terms of uh, how Washington perceives its interests, and Bahrain is a uh, central country in terms of how Washington views its interests. So in, in Tunisia, we had a situation where uh, there was a popular uprising. Uh, it uh, rather swiftly uh, was successful in overthrowing the government led by Ben Ali, um, but the government of Ben Ali was, just like uh, with Bahrain, uh, a dictatorship 
who cracked down on press freedoms and was uh, known for torturing his people and and um, uh, and and you know Tunisia fortunately was not so egregious as some of these other cases have been. You know, Egypt is far more egregious than Tunisia. In Egypt, uh, again, and that's that's a reflection of how important Washington views these countries. So, so Egypt, with the Mubarak government, was uh, you know extremely brutal. Had long been known for uh, torturing its people, um, and that was because uh, the Egyptian government allowed U.S. For, uh, forces on its lands. Uh, they were deferential to Israel uh, and, you know, imposed the longstanding treaty uh, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, you, you see the most abuse end up in places where there is the most uh, interested parties from Washington that are watching. Mm-hmm. Same, same question as before regarding Tunisia, but uh, with Morocco and, and, you know, since you mentioned uh, oppressing uh, free journalism, uh, the instance of, of Youssef Jajili, you know, criticizing the government and then going to jail um, in, in Morocco. Uh, uh, discuss uh, the Moroccan situation. Morocco is a similar case. You know, uh, uh, when journalists uh, criticize uh, gover- uh, dictatorial governments, uh, they're going to crack down on them. And the U.S. will be complicit in that so long as Washington perceives it as within its interests. Um, uh, the guy Yusuf is is very similar to lots of Bahraini journalists and human rights activists who have been thrown in jail and uh, uh, tortured and uh, whose whose views have been suppressed as a result of the United States government being on the side of the dictators and not on, not on the side of the people. Mm-hmm. All right, um, let's talk about U.S. drone warfare. Uh, in order to mask the amount of innocents and children massacred by these drone strikes, the U.S. had begun considering. Any male able enough to join a local militant group is considered to be a militant without proof uh, just to mask the numbers of civilian casualties to make us look better. Uh, Give us a history of civilian bloodshed from these drone strikes starting under Bush and then continuing under Obama. So it's actually quite hard to do that um, because the drone war has been kept secret uh, so as to prevent any public knowledge of their consequences upon the civilian populations. Um, the best estimate that we have uh, is the most, the most comprehensive aggregate data that is on the drone strikes uh, comes from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, which says that maybe something like 3,000 people, probably a little more, have been killed by uh, the drones, in, in mainly in Pakistan, but also in Yemen and Somalia. Uh, uh, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism has been able to uh, estimate that there are anywhere from about 470 to almost 900 uh, civilians that they can actually identify. Uh, but this is all, this is still uh, sort of buying into the administration's uh, logic that any military age male in a particular geographic location can be considered by someone with a joystick in Arizona to be an enemy combatant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if you count civilians like that, you'll never get high civilian rates of casualties because that's virtually everybody. Um, the, the drone war is extremely counterproductive 
In fact, uh, the researchers have pointed this out. There was a study by the Stanford and NYU schools of law that found that the drone, the drone program is terrorizing the people of Pakistan uh, and having counterproductive effect because the people who suffer this psychological trauma of having their, their relatives uh, uh, bombed for no reason um, uh, are sympathizing with the more extreme elements of uh, the jihadists that are in northwest Pakistan and, and Yemen. Uh, it not only kills civilians and injures civilians, but it traumatizes the population. People end up having to keep their children home from school to avoid any large grouping of people. And, and uh, again, as I said, it, it helps in the uh, uh, recruitment of extremist groups like al-Qaeda. The, you know, another study by the Columbia Law School of Human, Human Rights Institute found that, you know, the drone strikes, uh, civilians killed in drone strikes are significantly and consistently underestimated by tracking organizations uh, because they're trying to take the place of government estimates on civilian casualties, which the Obama administration refuses to give. Um, so, it, you know, it's really dangerous. So the, you know, um, it, it remains technically classified, so the Obama administration can skirt any and all responsibility by citing national security concerns. And, uh, you know, just a, one example is, is a recent Washington Post article published, like, uh, in December. I'm going to just briefly quote it, if you'll bear with me. Uh, a, a Yemeni villager named Mohammed told the Post that our, our entire village is angry at the government and the Americans. If the Americans are responsible, he said, I would have no choice but to sympathize with al-Qaeda because al-Qaeda is fighting America. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is the situation we see. We're, we're literally laying the groundwork for more blowback uh, because we're trying to, you know, the Obama administration is trying to exploit a technological loophole that avoids any risk to U.S. soldiers by just, you know, sending robots in the sky uh, and bombing people uh, without any evidence that they've committed any wrongdoing, without any accountability, without any transparency, without any knowledge of Congress or of the American people. Uh, it's extremely dangerous. It's probably illegal. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and nobody has been able to do anything about it yet. Uh, there are uh, beginnings in the United Nations uh, led by Ben Emerson, who's a special envoy, uh, to investigate the drone war. But we'll have to see how that turns out. We're not really sure how much access they'll be given by the United States. They're not really sure, you know, if they'll be given any legal teeth to actually restrain what the Obama administration has been doing. But we'll see. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they came out with a supposed rule book for drone warfare. But the ACLU recently reported that the rules aren't much. And even with that, the CIA doesn't even have to follow those rules for a year. And given that the CIA is pretty much the sole organization carrying out these attacks, what are the points of these rules? That's right. Uh, the rules are probably more of a public relations stunt. You know, everything we know, it's interesting because, as I said before, sort of a dual-track issue here. Uh, everything we know about the drone war, we know because the Obama administration has sent its minions to talk to reporters in the New York Times and so forth uh, and tell them about the successes, quote-unquote, of the drone war. So when we, when we know... We know about the fact that you know military-age males are counted, and nobody, unless 
posthumously proven innocent is considered a civilian. We know that because the Obama administration explicitly told it to the New York Times. Uh, this is not some subversive literature that's trying to expose the Obama administration for mass crimes. This is what the Obama administration wants Americans to know. They want to brag that, look, I'm tough on terrorism, I kill lots of people, and you'll never know, you know, be able to sympathize with them if they happen to be innocents because I'm not going to tell you if they're innocents. So, uh, you know, the, the rule book is probably uh, along the lines of this uh, public relations stunt that the Obama administration wants to expose itself as being tough on terror when it's really just murdering people. Mm -hmm. Talk a bit about who John Brennan is and why he is even scarier than Petraeus. Well, John Brennan is the current uh, counterterrorism advisor to the president. Um, he was previously at the CIA. Um, president Obama initially, uh, the, the first time around after his inauguration in 2009, wanted to uh, uh, nominate Brennan for head of the CIA. But he ran into some issues because Brennan himself uh, was criticized for being involved in and overseeing much of the torture that went, all on, went around in the Bush administration. And Obama virtually came to power uh, by being a at least rhetorical critic of the Bush administration's torture policies. And so he ran into problems. Instead, he made him his counterterrorism chief. But now he's again electing him to the CIA. And he's dangerous because... You know, the drone war is essentially his brainchild. Uh, it, Brennan is the one that gathers up uh, names and faces uh, of, of various people that he puts on a kill list. Uh, it's been compared in the New York Times and elsewhere to baseball cards or a, wow. a high, high school yearbook. Um, uh, and by presidential decree, sort of like the powers that uh, the king of Great Britain had, uh, you can decide if someone lives or dies. Uh, and this is the guy that, you know, operating in the shadows without legal constraints, without transparency, this is, this is who Brennan is. He's, he's the godfather of the, uh, of the drone war, um, and he's got all these Luca Brazzi's uh, just bombing people. Uh, so so uh, the fact that he's the head of the CIA is probably equally troubling as him being counterterrorism advisor. Mm -hmm. For those just joining, uh, speaking with John Glazer, editor of antiwar.com, I was uh, a little bit, you know, uh, taken by uh, uh, the, the Hegel uh, nomination because he said he was a U.S. senator, not an Israeli senator. Uh, but given Obama's history, I, I, I think it might be too little, too late, and I fear that if appointed, he, will fold, he might fold for political pressure or may just be a powerless sitting duck, uh, given Brennan. Uh, am I right in fearing that nothing will change even with the nomination of Hegel? Uh, I I th I think so. So this is I I should be upfront with your listeners. I me and me and my colleague Justin Raimondo actually disagree pretty pretty severely uh, when it comes to Hegel. Justin's very excited. He he has no illusions about Hegel's views and how uh, uh, antithetical they are to some of our views at antiwar.com. But he views his successful nomination to Secretary of Defense as some sort of uh, victory and. While it's true, and you know your initial impressions are are, are also valid, that uh, his criticism of Israel, what he called the Jewish lobby or the Israeli lobby, 
and his criticism of that lobby's control over Congress, those are all, you know, very welcome and refreshing views for a senator turned secretary of defense to have. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that Donna Rumsfeld was occupying the same seat that Hegel might uh, occupy. Uh, on the other hand, Hegel, his, the view by, by much of the public that Hegel was you know, far outside the mainstream is just not true. It's, uh, he is a mainstream uh, person. He, he, he uh, supports a very strong government. He supports that government's ability to uh, uh, warrantlessly wiretap and spy on Americans. He supports uh, Israel. He hasn't advocated for the U.S. to stop supporting Israeli apartheid systems or settlements or, you know, bombing campaigns in Gaza. He, he doesn't, he's not in uh, opposition to U.S. aid to Israel, U.S. diplomatic support of Israel. Uh, he also initially he supported the uh, Iraq war. He then, you know, in 2000, late 2002, 2003, 2004 and beyond, he became an, adv you know, a harsh critic of the war. But... Um, you know, we should we should definitely be weary and concerned about exactly how much should change. We sh we shouldn't get too excited about Hegel. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now Hegel's on a campaign to convince uh, the Israel lobby and many of the pro-Israel senators in 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 the Senate and in the House. I mean, he just spoke with, uh, for example, Chuck Schumer, the senator from New York, one of the most pro pro-Israel members of Congress. And uh, Schumer came away saying, you know, I believe that Hegel is a strong supporter of, of Israel. He disavowed his past call to open negotiations with Hamas. Um, he said further unilateral U.S. Acts, sanctions against Iran might be necessary. So he's going to sort of conform to the Obama administration's view. That's why the Obama administration decided to nominate him. And, you know, that, go that goes back to exactly what my point is. That has nothing to do with I think he was lying about what he's, about his past statements. But for me, I, I, given that there was no difference between Obama and Romney on these issues, I, I think that, you know, it's kind of like a, a puppet show, given that the Federal Reserve finance machine, as well as the heavy hand of our uh, military-industrial complex, is, you know, controlling our policies, politicians, and elections. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, yeah, uh, the, the, the nature of government is that it uh, is in bed with other powerful interests. Governments are power centers. And, um, you know, when you, when you have uh, corporations that are in part the birth of the U.S. government and um, a military-industrial complex that feeds off of government largesse, and, and um, you know, these are, as Eisenhower said, uh, unwarranted influences on the direction of and, and the policies of American policy uh, of the American government, um, and we need to be extremely, extremely critical of them and extremely uh, skeptical uh, of where they're coming from and why they're coming from where they're coming from and what they're doing to try and affect U.S. policy. Um, and and a lot of a lot of what U.S. foreign policy how it how it's manifested. Uh, especially, as I said before, uh, in the post-World War II war, uh, world, um, is, is, is a result of uh, the kind of people that have taken the reins of government, uh, but just aren't the sort of poster child. So, it's, so, it's, so we see Obama, but we're really talking with uh, Lockheed Martin. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and we see Obama, but we are really talking with the banksters that are closely aligned with the Federal Reserve and you know uh, benefit off of their uh, loose monetary policies. So uh, yeah, you're right. We should be extremely uh, skeptical of these forces. Mm-hmm. And, and final word, uh, just you know where uh, on where this uh, this will all lead, because uh, I'm scared to death of a war with Iran. Given that Syria is sort of a stepping stone, it will leave Iran as the only country left unscathed by U.S. intervention and regime change. Uh, war hawks are, are eager to point out that there's an imminent threat from Iran, but I think it's our aggressive wars that will make them a threat since they will just want to defend themselves from being ganged up upon. Is this going to lead to a, a possible World War III and maybe, you know, thus possible human extinction? <laughs> Well, I think that's overly pessimistic. Uh, I I consider myself a realist, and I and I I sympathize with both pessimists and uh, optimists. But I'm slightly more optimistic uh, than your diagnosis. Um, first of all, I make a living out of criticizing the Obama administration. Literally, that's my job, and so I can spend all day talking about how ruthless and terrible and uh, extra-legal and counterproductive and uh, anti-humanitarian and so forth the Obama administration's policies have been. But we do have to recognize uh, where the United States is geopolitically and how that affects policies from the executive branch. Uh, In two recent interviews, President Obama articulated in unprecedented depth why his administration has chosen to refrain from either directly arming the rebels or from any direct military action against the Assad regime. Um, And he basically said what I told you earlier. We don't have the ability to act so unilaterally as the Bush administration gathered that we did with Iraq in 2003. Um, And with Iran, it's the same thing. You know, the military establishment, what we hear from politicians in Congress and from the talking heads on, in, in, in the major media corporations is not what's going on in the military and intelligence community. Uh, part of my job is reading what they think. The military intelligence community does not want a war with Iran. They view it as against U.S. interests. Uh, they're not some wonderful, angelic humanitarians. They're not non-interventionists. But they view a war on Iran as counterproductive because, first of all, Iran has the capability to retaliate not only against our troops that are in Bahrain and in Afghanistan and in, in, in the Gulf Arab states and so forth, but they also have the ability now to probably uh, retaliate uh, against Israel, uh, which would obviously be part and parcel of a U.S. attack on Iran. So these things are pushing back against the power structure a bit, uh, and there are realities that they can't really deny. Uh, and so, rather than the destruction of the world, uh, I think it's important to recognize that as bad as things are, and as uh, much there is to criticize, um, the, we're living in comparatively peaceful times now. A, a, a fine example is just take what was going on in Vietnam. The United States murdered maybe three million people in Vietnam. I mean, it's an unimaginable number of people, and there was no sustained popular protest in America until very late in that process. You know, late 60s, early 70s, that's when the height of the anti-war movement 
coming from from Vietnam happened. Um, and while the U.S. was firebombing, you know, landless peasants in South Vietnam uh, in the early 60s, uh, there was not a peep from the American people. And that's really changed. And consider what happened in 2003 in Iraq in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq. Before the, the Bush administration even began to bomb Baghdad, there were millions of people in the streets and in the, the cities of, in the streets of Washington protesting that intervention. Americans are you know, progressively getting more used to the idea that the United States cannot just uh, bomb the world and, and kill people without any consequences. And um, I think that there is a lot to celebrate. Uh, uh, there, you know, there is a lot to be happy about. Uh, despite the fact that most of my job is dwelling on what to be negative about, mm -hmm. and, and you know, I, you know, I, I definitely agree. You know, it definitely quells my fears. My, you know, the just my uh, my my uh, coming from that was the Einstein quote. I don't know how World War Three is going to be fought, but I know that World War Four is going to be fought with sticks and stones. That's right, which is a which is probably true. Uh, however, we're in a, we're also in a situation where you know the primary. Uh, enemy that Washington is able to drum up are non-state actors. We're not going to get in a nuclear war with Russia. It's just not going to happen. I mean, it's, it's out of the realm of possibility for reasonable thinking people. And uh, so, you know, uh, a war of nuclear weapons in which China is involved and you know, India is involved and Israel is involved and the United States is involved and Russia, it's just uh, not going to happen. What people, what's going on now is that states have solidified and consolidated their power over their populations, and the Arab Spring is a good indication of this. The real war now is the people against their governments. Mm -hmm. You know, technology and social networking and the uh, immediacy of communication and the transparency that uh, that imposes on, imposes on power structures is really beneficial and has has sort of been able to help dominate what goes on now. So now it's insurgent groups against their government. Now it's secessionist groups against their government. Now it's popular protests against their own governments. And governments are mainly worried about their domestic populations as opposed to some big scary bad guy. And it's the job of people like you and me and the population of America to dress down politicians when they talk about big scary bad guys because those big scary bad guys are mainly meant to keep us shut up uh, and to keep us quiet and to keep us scared and keep us obedient to, to Washington. Uh, and that's not going to happen. I don't see that happening. And, and bringing that up as a final word, uh, could you uh, discuss, you know, uh, domestically the police state and what the U.S. government is trying to do to suppress their own people? So this is a, a dual track. All, all the positive things I just said have a negative uh, aspect to them when it comes to domestic surveillance um, and, and all of these things, you know, uh, Homeland Security is this massive, massive government bureaucracy, and they're collecting information on Americans uh, at every second. Um, the warrantless wiretapping provisions in the FISA laws that the Obama administration uh, came into office criticizing, but then immediately uh, advocated for and pushed for strengthening, were just uh, signed back into law, just renewed. And uh, the Obama administration refuses to release any information on, on, on you know, um, 
uh, how many times Americans have been caught up in this wiretapping program, how many Americans are affected by it, uh, how, how much uh, uh, surveillance they're actually doing. But we do have ways to tell. The ACLU has done great work on, on this. Google actually publishes how many government requests for user data there have been, and that's a really good thing. Uh, and so what we see is that uh, the government is collecting more and more of our information, um, and agencies associated with Homeland Security are are trying to crack down on anti-war movements and uh, political movements uh, that Paul. are <laughs> Ron Paul activists, Ron Paul supporters. They have been included in, in that sort of uh, dragnet system. And um, it doesn't end there. We're also seeing the militarization of the police. We're also seeing the police, local policemen, you know, being armed as if they're commandos in some far-off uh, Muslim land trying to suppress an insurgent movement. And that's just absurd. One, you know, good thing about this is that we can fight back with our, the cameras that we hold in our pockets all the time. You know, sometimes it's easy to forget how amazing that is. You know, for for uh, hundreds of thousands of years of human history, we couldn't do anything like that. Mm -hmm. And now it's so normal to have the one of the greatest weapons in the world, which is transparency, uh, right in our pocket. And if you see a cop, record him. You see him beating up somebody, record him. Uh, and so, you know, this is all for the better. And we see it in the Arab Spring. You know, the Arab Spring, I think, in the long term is a very good thing. And it's going to be on the side of the people. Uh, and it's going to have fits and spurts. And it's going to suck sometimes. And it's going to be great sometimes. But the underlying fact is that we have the ability with technology to really hold people accountable that want to... Uh, suppress uh, freedom. Mm -hmm. And for those listening, if you have an iPhone, go ahead, Ustream uh, downloads it straight to your offsite account or Quick QIK, again, an offsite account so they can't erase it once they confiscate your phone. Um, so, John Glazer, editor of antiwar.com, thank you very much for joining the program. Okay, appreciate it. Antiwar.com is a very great website. Um, I get it a lot for foreign policy news and uh, I do agree you know, that the nuclear war is probably not possible, but we're, I, even if we're not causing ourselves to be extinct, we're still killing ourselves off uh, needlessly. Uh, you know, these are human lives that you cannot get back. Uh, people that are continuing, continuing to suffer at the hands of our foreign policy in the Middle East because bombs don't cause uh, stimulus, uh, contrary to what Paul Krugman has to say. No, you're blowing up stuff. Blowing up the ground is not good for the environment. It's not economic. It's not creative. And it doesn't cause anything but suffering and uh, stealing of resources from you and I to pay for a $6 million bomb that we drop on a $10 tent. And, you know, I, I just think that if we do have a mandatory draft or selective service or whatever we have. Um, yes, even if we don't go towards, uh, you know, uh, a nuclear war, which would result in human extinction, we're still going to send people off to die to kill other people as well. You know, for me, I would never, ever open fire on someone from Syria or Iran just because the government told me to and said that they were all bad guys. No, that'd be somebody else and they would be firing at us because we were over there. If we hadn't been over there, nobody would be firing at us. Um, 
It's uh, the, the war is just killing people. It's killing our fellow human beings. Unless we have a real defensive interest, then there's no need. And I haven't seen a war since World War II, and not including World War One. World War One was definitely the the impetus of of uh, of our imperialism. Uh, it was an unnecessary war, World War One. But World War Two fought badly, I think, by you know. And then certainly with the internment of Japanese, the invention of the nuclear bomb, the dropping of the n- nuclear bomb. Uh, yeah, aside from that, um, maybe maybe if we had a you know better, you know, less uh, power-hungry president, maybe it would have been a more swift and, and less destructive uh, defensive war. But other than that, and that was actually the last war we ever declared. So none of these wars have been for good it's all as uh, general smedley butler wrote in his book war is a racket he is a muscle man for big business big oil and why are we going to war with iran well to protect the strait of hormuz for trade why are we involved in so many of these other countries like somalia and libya and uh bahrain and and uh, yemen it's all the strait of hormuz big corporations want that strait of hormuz they pay congress to protect it with big guns, uh, and it's just tragic. And you know, I'm draft age. I I assume you're all draft age. This affects us directly. And again, women are are uh, the government's considering lumping them into the selective service thing. It brings me to this next song, uh, which the uh, verse in the song is the the onset of war is the fall of reason. And this is by Watchtower off their album Control and Resistance. And they're some of the most gnarliest musicians I've ever heard ever. So in addition to the prophetic lyrics, I think you'll have your face melted. So uh, be sure to stay tuned after the break. Don't go anywhere. It's freethoughtmedia.org. And my guest in the second hour is Barry Leidendorf of the San Diego Veterans for Peace, giving the veterans perspective on why we should not use violence to solve our conflicts. You're listening to KKSM AM 1320, The Radio Revolution, The Fall of Reason by Watchtower. Be right back.
The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and not of KKSM, Palomar College, its staff, the board of directors, or station management. You're listening to KKSM, Palomar College Radio. You're listening to KKSM AM 1320 Oceanside, com. Welcome back, everybody, to Free Thought Radio. That last song you heard was The Fall of Reason by Watchtower. And with sequestration, veterans' benefits have been cut. And, you know, that's very unfortunate. There's a homeless veteran epidemic. Um, and we need to ask ourselves, what are the government's priorities? The sequester didn't actually cut anything. It cut the increase in spending. So are they going after things that are just really easy to go after, like things that uh, you know that are obligated to do, like paying veterans for you know putting their lives on the line, or, or or will they actually go after the real elephants in the room? And I have to say that they they're not going after the real elephants in the room. You know, to cut those that have served the country dutifully, or to cut the true elephant in the room, which is our global empire. Um, it is the imperialism of our foreign policy that costs so much. I mean, the Pentagon's budget is, you can't know what it is. There is no audit. The Pentagon is sort of almost as secretive as the Federal Reserve, and we know more about the CIA than we know about the Federal Reserve. Um, That is why my next guest is a veteran, and will give his perspective on the need for peace and to cut spending uh, where it counts, the undeclared wars of the empire and every cost that goes along with that. Joining me now is Barry Ladendorf. He is on the executive committee of the San Diego Veterans for Peace as well as the uh, National uh, Organization of Veterans for Peace. Uh, Barry, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you, Alex. Happy to be here. So uh, give us a a bit of uh, background on your military service and and then why you decided to join uh, Veterans for Peace. Well, uh, Alex, uh, I uh, was a naval officer uh, during the Vietnam War. I served on active duty from uh, November of 1964 to November of 1965, and I was uh, I was an engineering officer and communications uh, officer on a ship, the USS Valley Forge. Uh, we made three tours to Vietnam, so I was there for parts of the years of 65 through 68. Uh, then I went to shore duty, and I served as the uh, nuclear weapons liaison officer to the nuclear weapons training center in San Diego, uh, and the foreign training and intelligence officer for the commander of training command Pacific Fleet. Um, and then I spent five years also in the active reserves. So that's uh, my military background and experience. Why did you decide to join uh, Veterans for Peace? You know, Alex, I think uh, uh, looking back on uh, the war in Vietnam, uh, of course, uh, one of the reasons that I uh, joined the uh, the Navy uh, was partly because uh, at growing up I was uh, a true believer in an uh, obligation to serve in the military. I look forward to it. Uh, at one time I thought that I would like to go to Annapolis and the Naval Academy, uh, I ended up going a different path, and uh, I thought it was my duty and obligation to uh, serve in the military, and I was quite happy to do so. 
and quite uh, looking forward to the fact that uh, there was a war that was going to be going on uh, and that I would be able to participate uh, just like uh, my uh, uncles and uh, folks that I grew up with in the small Illinois town in the Midwest uh, that all served in the military. Uh, but it didn't take uh, long to uh, experience the uh, events in Vietnam to realize that it was a uh, fool's journey and that uh, the kinds of um, information that the U.S. government had given us about why we were in Vietnam proved out to be false in my view, uh, particularly looking back over the history of the war and how we came uh, to be a part of it. And uh, you know, the more I looked at it uh, uh, on my, I think my last tour there, I was pretty much completely opposed to the war and I was ready to uh, get out of that and didn't want any part of uh, that again. And when I left military service, uh, I was determined that I would uh, have to be involved in some organizations or work in organizations in which uh, trying to avoid uh, conflict and uh, resolving things through violence and war was not the uh, approach. Uh, for a few years, in the mid-80s, I was on the uh, Catholic Diocese Peace and Justice Commission here for six years. I was a chairperson for two years. and. We were a very active organization uh, against the defense industry here in town, against the nuclear weapons um, policy, uh, and we're quite active as an anti-war group. Uh, it came about 19, about 2005, I guess, uh, when the Iraq war was uh, heated up, and I kept looking and seeing that uh, you know the same kinds of misstatements about war were being uh, foisted again on the American people, and uh, I thought, you know, this uh, we've got to. I've got to get involved in some group or organization that is is willing to say no to this. And I ran across the Veterans for Peace at an Earth Day um, event in uh, 2004. I talked to a, uh, a person there who was a uh, Navy pilot for 28 years, and uh, talked to him materials and decided that this was the organization I should belong to. So I ended up joining Veterans for Peace. Mm -hmm. And uh, let, let's jump uh, here forward to uh, current events just for a little bit. Uh, in the course of less than three months, uh, starting at, at the uh, at, uh, after the election, uh, we have already gone into Mali, uh, which has resulted in some serious blowback with the hostage situation and, and the first ever suicide bombing in the country that they have ever experienced. We've also right. we've also placed troops and missiles on the border with Syria, not to mention the covert interventions on the part of the State Department, uh, possibly the CIA and the Pentagon to uh, instigate the rebellion. And uh, we have also declared Iran as an official threat in the 2013 version of the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, what do you make of these and, and where is this all leading? Well, you know, I, I'm really uh, concerned about this uh, unchecked um, spread of the U.S. military uh, power, and, and particularly in going into other countries. And you could add to those lists the fact that we are uh, engaged still in uh, hostilities in Pakistan, a country that we're not at war with, uh, in Somalia, in Yemen, countries that we are not at war with. And in addition to Mali, there's probably uh, many reports say that we have special operations forces um, around the world and as perhaps as many as 60, 70 nations that 
There is no congressional oversight over any of this. This is not being done because uh, the United States has declared uh, a war against uh, these nations. What they're relying on, and if you have uh, one of the other things that has been uh, just recently um, uh, released here, uh, Alex, as you know, is this white paper uh, uh, issued by, or I, I guess, leaked by the Pentagon, which is a sort of a summary of the uh, secret legal documents uh, that justify uh, these uh, attacks on, on U.S. citizens, for example. Um, and, and what they rely on, even in that document still, is the authorization for the use of military force from 2001. And if you look carefully, uh, Alex, at the language of that document, it, it says spe uh, specifically uh, that the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or such organizations or persons in order to prevent any further acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. Now think of that. Mm -hmm. last, last night in his inaugural address, inaugural, I'm sorry, in the State of the Union address, uh, President Obama said that uh, basically Al-Qaeda, as it was constituted in 2001, is virtually non-existent. That we have, in fact, decapitated uh, its leadership. When you think that Osama bin Laden, which was the reason that we went into Afghanistan in the beginning, has been killed, the supposed mastermind or the alleged mastermind of the 9-11 attacks has been held in prison for years, has been waterboarded uh, hundreds of times, uh, has yet to stand trial for those crimes, and other leaders have been assassinated, then what is the legal justification for continuing this conflict when we, uh, when we have decapitated uh, those people and the organizations and persons who were responsible, at least the United States government believes, were responsible for the attack on 9-11. Now, he did say in his uh, speech last night that the uh, al-Qaeda has reconstituted in some areas around the world, but these people are not involved in uh, the attack on 9-11. So what's the justification for using you know, U.S. military force without any further congressional authorization? Uh, and in fact, the other uh, 2012 authorization or, or National Defense uh, Acts did not uh, enlarge or expand upon the authorization here. So uh, I think there is grave concern about uh, the legal authority for doing this uh, uh, as the they're using the uh, AUMF as the justification uh, for these attacks against you know, people around the globe. Uh, you got the question of international law. I mean, and remember this, just because the United States Congress in a resolution uh, gave the president this open-ended authority to conduct a worldwide war, uh, which seemingly has no end, uh, doesn't mean that the United States is excused from following international law on its uh, activities around the world. You know, when you go into, into nations um, like uh, Afghanistan, or like uh, Malia uh, and Somalia, or Yemen and Somalia, and, uh, and 
um, Mali and other places, um, you know, to de- to deliver lethal force in these countries, uh, what authority is there to violate the in- the independence and the integrity of these separate nations? You can't. I don't believe you can use the argument that we have the permission of the country to come in and use legal force against the citizens of that country. And that's what's happened in, in uh, if you look at the studies from Stanford Law School and, uh, and New York University Law School that have tracked uh, the United States activities. And, and, of course, theirs was limited at the time to Pakistan and the uh, a country, again, which we are not uh, at war with. But we have killed, uh, it's estimated, six or 700 of their citizens, many of them children, many certainly non-combatants, and uh, people that we have uh, have gotten in the way of of, of the uh, use of our drones and and our, and our attempt to go after people that we believe are, are a threat to the United States. And you look further at the at the white paper, Alex, and its justification for uh, killing uh, a U.S. citizen, for example. And that is that you know there have to be three criteria, and and the first one is is that a uh, a high U.S. official, uh, government official, has to have a reasonable belief that the the person uh, represents an imminent threat of violent attack against the United States. Well, that argument is based upon the uh, nation's inherent right of self-defense. And, of course, the word imminent threat has always been understood in international law <clears throat> until just uh post 9-11, that a nation has to really be a, uh, a threat of imminent attack. And you're usually talking about nation versus nation. For example, if some nation had its troops on the border of the United States and prepared to attack the United States, I think people could reasonably argue that that it was an imminent attack and we could take reasonable and necessary force, uh, even preventive uh, action to uh, prevent that attack. But uh, under the circumstances here, we're saying that we, this person has to be a imminent threat to the United States. But the real uh, kicker in all of this is that the white paper then goes on to say that, in fact, the United States official does not have to have any evidence that the attack is, is immediate that all we have to do is believe or assume that they are planning an attack. We don't have to have any evidence that they are. We don't have to have any evidence that we know that it's coming, when it's coming, where it's coming, or even uh, if it is ever going to occur. What we are, all we have to be is satisfied that these people are planning an attack, and the assumption is, is that uh, therefore. Uh, it, we can argue that it's imminent, which is just an illogical uh, use of, of <laughs> those terms. Uh, do, do you think that um, language as vague as that could be used to say that someone who's a who's a protester is somehow a, an imminent threat if they have, of course, they have no evidence, but they they could uh, arbitrarily decide uh, that they don't like this person and, and or something or anything like that. Well, we certainly don't know what kind of evidence they're using to have gone after Awaki and his 16-year-old son. Mm-hmm. His 16-year-old son was not a terrorist. What, what kind of evidence did they have 
to believe that these people were an imminent threat to justify uh, taking them out with a drone strike. And remember when the, when the son was killed, 16 years old, he was sitting in a cafe and the, there were other people around him that were his younger friends that were killed in the attack as well. Wow. Uh, there was there, there, no evidence here uh, has ever been produced by the U.S. government that suggests that, um, that this young 16-year-old U.S. citizen sitting having a, in a cafe in a, in a foreign country, I, I believe it was either Yemen or Somalia, I can't remember which one of the two, uh, gets wiped out by a, a, a Hellfire missile. Mm -hmm. And um, so, the, so in answer to your question, uh, absent some known criteria, I suppose that uh, the president uh, and those people in the uh, National uh, uh, Center for Terrorism uh, who compile these lists, these kill lists from the um, the uh, CIA and the military, and review those and and and, and set these uh, matrices to decide who's going to be killed, and then that information, those those lists are combined and and gone over by people like Mr. Brennan, who is now going to be uh, apparently the uh, new CIA director, and then these names are given to the president. But there's, there's no judicial oversight. Uh, there's no um, uh, way of knowing the criteria that are being used. And I think there's a very good argument to be made, and I just saw this recently, that uh, let it be Senator Wyden, I believe, wanted to add to the new uh, 2013 uh, defense bill that there should be no longer any secret memos justifying uh, military action or ju having any justification for whatever the executive branch does, does, mm -hmm. <laughs> does or plans to do. You know, in the same way John Hughes' memo about torture during the Bush years was kept secret for, for a long time. You know, we had no idea. And then when, the, when the, that document came out, it was pretty clear that this was an extremely tortured view of, of what the law was, both internationally and um, um, and, and United States law. I mean, the United States signs on to these, these conventions, the Geneva Conventions. These are treaty obligations. They are, when they become a treaty, uh, under the Article 6 of the Constitution, they are part of the supreme law of the land. They're not just a federal statute or a federal law, but they are elevated to the supreme law of the land. And so, uh, you know, we have uh, these secret memos being written in the Department of Justice, uh, giving President authority to do what he wants to do in terms of torture, in terms of killing other Americans, in terms of using military force in countries around the world, without any chance to have that reviewed and the judicial, or I'm sorry, the legal reasoning that underpins those uh, opinions to be. Uh, uh, reviewed by proper judicial authorities, or even by members of the of the Congress, who should have an oversight responsibility. So, I think any time the United States is is um, advancing uh, troops uh, on the whether it's on the the border of uh, not I mean troops, but uh, on the border of Syria or uh, going into countries with the use of military force. Uh, I, I, it's a very scary uh, proposition, and I think one of the things uh, you may know about, Alex, is that uh, new film that's, I think, just been released, The, the Dirty War, which is uh, uh, Scahill, who was a great reporter, um, 
uh, is one of the um, authors of that, uh, or produces of that film, and it talks about the the uh, the joint or, or JSOC, uh, the uh, the Joint Command uh, in the Pentagon, which is basically uh, a group of of assassins that are under the authority of this joint command without any oversight, which are controlled basically by the president, in which in the film, the reviewed Amy Goodman says that this is almost like the president's private uh, army, a paramilitary group. And when they interviewed in the film some of the uh, former members who were assassins, if you will, or uh, uh, were continually shocked at the number of names that continued to come down when they were working. No matter how many people they killed, there were always more people to kill. And it just, uh, I think, when you talk about blowback, uh, these are the things that the United States is uh, is going to have to deal with in the future, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And for those just uh, joining, I'm speaking with Barry Ladendorf of San Diego Veterans for Peace, and, and we were talking about you know, uh, Al Qaeda and how it's kind of dissipated, but through our, through our operations of, of, of supporting rebellions in other countries to try to achieve some sort of regime change, we're supporting, you know, rebellions that have elements of Al Qaeda within them. So we're supporting Al Qaeda to fight against Al Qaeda. It, It doesn't really make sense to me. What's your, what's your take on that? One of the problems is, let me give you an example. Uh, let me know if this is an, an answer to your response to your question. In, I believe it's uh, Somalia, there's a group called the Al-Shabaab. And uh, it's a, it's a, uh, a terrorist organization. Uh, these are not the Boy Scouts. Um, and their primary focus has been over the years to uh, undo the government which uh, uh, that has been propped up by the United States. You know, a, uh, they want to clearly, according to um, reports, at least that I've seen, establish is an Islamic uh, regime in those countries. And uh, it's also known at the time that they were not a country, or they were not an organization that had any particular uh, interest in uh, trying to go after the U.S. or U.S. citizens. They were they were in the country to try to overthrow um, their government. Now, the government in the country um, wanted the U.S. protection. Of course, what the U.S. wants to do is to control that government so that they can use that part of the world to as a launching point for uh, going elsewhere. They, they need these uh, in the same way. And the surprising thing that we can talk about in a moment is that the, the, the recent dis- the discovered just the other day uh, that went almost unnoticed in the press was the acknowledgement by uh, uh, John Brennan that the uh, United States has been operating a secret drone bra- uh, base in Saudi Arabia for a couple of years now. Actually, the, and, I want to add that the press did know about that. They just were uh, oh, coaxed into a, not talking about it because the CIA would say it was like a national security issue. Exactly. You're, you're right about that. that. That is absolutely correct. It was the press knew about it and they did not uh, reveal that at all, which is troubling in and of itself mm-hmm. <laughs> to, oh, yeah. uh, think, to think that the New York Times, uh, which had the story and agreed not to uh, uh, publish it, which is the, uh, you know, considered the major newspaper in the United States, the, the, the paper of record, uh, would agree to that uh, kind of, of cover up. But I think the problem then, getting back to the uh, Al Shabaab uh, organization, 
which has since, I think, have ties with Al-Qaeda and the, uh, and the uh, Arabian Peninsula. Um, the United States was aware that they were not uh, interested in going after U.S. Uh, that was one of the reasons why they wanted to be cautious, even-handed, if they and not do too much that would aggravate them to turn them against the U.S. completely, such that they would become a threat to the United States. So they were aware that they were involved in these nations um, in fermenting turmoil um, against uh, organizations that were not. Uh, antagonistic to the U.S., but because of our continued presence there, we push them in that direction. And that's the problem, is that when you interfere in the affairs of other nations, whether we like what they're doing or not, whether we think an Islamic Republic in Yemen or Somalia is something that would be in the interest of the United States, to me, is really not uh, relevant, number one. And second, it is no just cause for us to go into these countries and continually uh, uh, go after people that we uh, deem to be militants. You know, and you talk about that idea of the these kill lists, people who are on the, the list. Uh, the study by the, uh, I think it's the Bureau of Investigation in the UK, said that about 2% of the people that have been killed can be really considered as high-level, high-value al-Qaeda targets. That means 98% of the people are people that we're not high value targets. We're innocent civilians. We're women, children. People have nothing to do uh, with any kind of uh, struggle against the United States. Mm -hmm. and in fact, when people that have been killed have been called militants, the press has gone quite willingly along with that without trying to discover if that, those facts are really true. Uh, in many instances, as the Bureau of Investigation report and the Stanford and New York Law School report, in many instances, they don't really know for sure who they've killed. Mm -hmm. And then the notion that the United States, which has taken the position that uh, a few years ago, that any uh, males of a military age, and I assume that would mean anybody 18 to 40 uh, or, or beyond, uh, uh, is deemed to be, if they are in the strike zone and they're killed, they are deemed to be a terrorist or a militant unless posthumously mm -hmm. evidence comes forward from their family or from the government that proves conclusively that they were not a terrorist or a militant. So uh, one way to keep uh, casualties down and to keep collateral damage down is to just make an assumption that the people that you killed were all militants unless there's evidence to the contrary, which is quite an unusual way of looking at things. Usually yeah. we take the position that if we're going to kill people, we have a good reason to believe that, you know, at least if, if, if you're going to do it, whether you have the legal theory or not, at least make sure that it's arguably a person who has an interest in, in harming the United States. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and one of the things about all of this, too, uh, Alex, is that uh, as has been reported on this, on the white paper and the justification for these killings, is that it's really, uh, these are really bills of attainder. And, and, you know, and bills of attainder and ex post facto laws are unconstitutional in the United States. Now, and for those of your listeners who don't know what a bill of attainder is, this is the old British uh, law, and it was in some European countries, which means that the 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 uh, the government, and usually a uh, the royalty or the king or someone in the government, in the old days of bills of attainder, 
they uh, could punish someone without a trial. They determined that this person was guilty of something and that he could be punished or killed or whatever, and there was no need in, to bring that person to trial. Now, that was normally in cases involving treason or suspected treason. Uh, so you, you are punished. There's, there's, there's no requirement for trial. Think about what we're doing here in these drone strikes against people. Is this a resurrection of the unconstitutional use of a bill of attainder that we have determined that someone is guilty and we are killing them or punishing them and they are given no trial? Mm -hmm. that, is, uh, that is unlawful. I mean, that is unlawful. It's unconstitutional uh, in the United States. Now, for treason in the United States, this bill of attainder doesn't apply. In order to be convicted of treason under the Constitution, you either have to have a confession by the person of their treasonous conduct, or they have to be convicted on the testimony of two credible witnesses, at least, in order to find someone guilty of treason. Mm -hmm. So you think about the implications of, of what this uh, whole argument is raising in terms of constitutional issues. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And it has a lot to do with due process. And, and uh, like you said, with, with blowback, uh, we're, we're just going to create new enemies for us to fight that are probably not even you know related to Al-Qaeda, like the Times Square bomber. His sole reason was, hey, look, the United States kills people indiscriminately without caring who they are, you know, randomly, uh, you know, given the 98 or the 2 percent accuracy rate that the 98 percent is just random people that were in the blast range. Uh, that you know, he was just seeking some equity from the not to justify it in any way, but that was his thing to you know seek some equal exactly. amount of indiscriminate killing on the other side. Exactly, that's what he told the police when he was arrested. That's when he what he told the judge when he was sentenced. That that is exactly what's happened. And if you if you take a look at it, and if your readers or your listeners, I'm sorry, have listened have read. Uh, uh, Chalmers Johnson's book, uh, particularly his first one in, a, in the trilogy series, uh, Blowback, and he gives a, blowback is a CIA term, which means exactly what we've come to understand is that our policies in these countries uh, around the world where we have used our American uh, power to push against people in other countries in which we have uh, uh, failed to adhere to our own values and, uh, and what we don't practice what we preach in these countries, that the uh, response of these people is that they will uh, eventually uh, take action against us. They will have had enough of what the United States has done. You know, look at in the 1950s when we overthrew the government in Iran. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a, it was a democratically, it was elected government. And because of the, uh, the intent of the government to take over their own resources, which would require... Uh, nationalization of the uh, oil industries, but British Petroleum, for one, and uh, other American oil companies uh, put pressure on the U.S. government and the British government to do something about that. That uh, you know we can't have uh, this country, Iran, uh, having a say about its own natural resources. It's too valuable a commodity. Uh, we need the oil in uh, the Western uh, world, and uh, we can't allow this to happen. So what we do, we, the CIA and uh, others uh, organized a, a coup that overthrew the government. And who did we in install but the, the Shah, who stayed there until the, uh, the rev revolution of the uh, 1979, 78, 79, 
and uh, set up a, a virtual police state um, with a, a putting his uh, opposition people in prison, torturing them. Uh, and this went on for 20 years. And the United States ultimately paid the penalty when uh, our embassy was ransacked after the, the government and, uh, and the, uh, the Shah was uh, deposed. And part of that was because he came to the United States for uh, treatment of, uh, I think he allegedly had cancer, and they wanted him to return for trial in their country. You know, mm -hmm. he, he violated the laws of their country. He wanted him, uh, the people, uh, the government of Iran, wanted him to return. The United States refused to do so. And, uh, of course, we know that what happened after that with the uh, storming of the embassy, the hostages for over 400 days, and, and the fact that we've had no diplomatic relations with Iran since that time. And yet, uh, you know, we have this threat against them that if uh, we are not going to let them get uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, so, uh, you know, how these things play out is uh, the United... I, I just think our country so often uh, forgets... Uh, and doesn't understand uh, how to act as a good citizen in the world on many occasions. Often we do. I mean, often we do very good things in the world. And you can look at disasters that happened in Thailand and earthquakes here and there, and the United States will do uh, come to the rescue that people generously contribute to uh, helping that. But in other times, and, the, and that's the, mostly the people acting, you know, of the United States. But mm -hmm. often uh, we are not... Uh, uh, acting like a good a citizen of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, for just a bit of history, um, how, what was the U.S.'s role in creating Al-Qaeda uh, against the Soviets? Well, that's a real interesting story, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, when you look at the the history of, of that, um, you have to go back actually to the Carter administration. And uh, it was... Uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was the national security advisor to President Carter, who actually uh, proudly, uh, in his words, uh, engineered uh, this whole uh, notion to drag the Soviet Union into uh, the war against Afghanistan. And um, it was uh, his idea was that we should support uh, the uh, Afghan people, that we should support those uh, who were fighting against the uh, Soviet Union. And that, of course, was Osama bin Laden. It was the people that had become uh, Al-Qaeda. And uh, we supported that. Uh, uh, the argument was, is that what are we doing uh, in here, uh, helping the organizations like the Taliban, helping these people? And Brzezinski said, uh, well, what's more important? to end the Cold War and bring down the Soviet Union or allowing these uh, a few uh, terrorist uh, groups in the Middle East to get themselves uh, to support them against the evil empire here. And uh, so uh, that was how we got that whole operation underway. It was, and eventually the Soviet Union did lose the war and the United States uh, set up this uh, government in um, or not set up the government, but they assisted al-Qaeda in, in Afghanistan. But then, of course, you know, with the United States bases uh, being in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, 
the uh, Osama bin Laden became very upset with the, with the notion that the U.S. Uh, bases were there, uh, that the uh, infidels, although they had helped us, he didn't want them uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia, where the the great cities of Mecca and Medina and the and the historical uh, uh, shrines of Islam uh, uh, are located. And, and he thought to have them on the one of the United States out of there. Um, and so uh, the, the, the failure of the U.S. to leave there ultimately led to, uh, in many people's mind, uh, among other things, the fact that we uh, of our uh, not living up to our own values that we preach around the world ultimately led to the attack against the United States and uh, 9-11. And, and interestingly enough, we haven't apparently learned about that. As, as we discussed just a little bit earlier, Alex, was the idea that uh, John Brennan, uh, who was the station chief in uh, uh, Saudi Arabia for the CIA for a period of time and developed close ties with a lot of people in their intelligence group, was uh, instrumental here in the last few years of uh, imploring the uh, Saudis to allow us to put this secret uh, drone base uh, in Saudi Arabia. So now that that's become public, and to think of the turmoil that was caused by our other bases there, we were forced to leave Saudi Arabia after 9-11 because of the blowback from having it there. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, what lesson did we learn from that? Apparently none. And, and well, as soon as the uh, Soviets uh, decided to pull out of the Afghan war, uh, I, I forget who it was, but the person, uh, one of the, one of uh, someone from the government or the Pentagon or the, or the CIA went over to give uh, Al Qaeda or the Mujahideen a farewell address saying that they have done God's work. And, uh, you know, now, now we're a complete 180 degrees. Um, it, it, it makes no sense to me. Well, it makes no sense to me either. In fact, it was, uh, I think it was the Reagan administration uh, who uh, compared them to um, the, uh, they were, they had this, the, should be held in the same light as the founding fathers of the United States, of our founding fathers, that they were the same courageous uh, revolutionaries that uh, the U.S. forebears were. Mm -hmm. uh, a rather remarkable thing to say, uh, considering where we're at uh, today. I mean, it's, it's, well, it's the same thing, Alex. You know, you, you, you look at the historical uh, situation in Iraq, isn't that pretty much the same thing. Remember that uh, yeah, we, what we, I read. we were once cozy with Saddam. You know, uh, especially since you know all the familiar faces we see throughout our government: Donald Rumsfeld, Colin Powell. They've all been you know cozy at one point, and then enemies at an, at another point. Exactly. Uh, you know, we were giving them information on uh, on the uh, the chemicals to make their chemical warfare. Uh, Rumsfeld was over there shaking hands with uh, uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, and then when they uh, don't want to uh, play ball with us anymore, then we, uh, you know, get involved in a conflict. So that's unfortunately the, the sad and sordid history that we have uh, been involved in in the Middle East for some time now. It's, it's really time for the United States to, and I was, uh, you know, with this situation in Syria, I'm glad that we haven't gone in there. You know, I'm glad that at least President Obama has stayed out of that conflict in terms of putting troops there and uh, trying to, hopefully, we, we're not going to make any further uh, steps in uh, involvement in that conflict. But uh, I think 
we would be best served if the United States would just withdraw from the, the Middle East and, and its, its influence there. It's time to begin to try to work with people. You know, one of the tenets of Veterans for Peace is that, you know, as, as veterans and, and our, uh, you know, we've experienced that conflict. Uh, there's got to be a better way of resolving differences between people than going to war. And there has to be peaceful ways of resolving conflict. And uh, that's what we call for. You know, that's one of the tenets of Veterans for Peace that are veterans and associate members that, that work in our organization. You know, we've got to uh, make aware, uh, make the public aware of, of what the costs of war are uh, to inform them of what's happening. You know, there was a story uh, that I heard just a, a, a while ago. Um, it was a talk by Paul Chappelle, actually. Uh, he was mentioning that uh, a friend of his from Pakistan uh, raised the question. Uh, you know, he said, uh, I don't understand the American people. He says, the American people, when you meet them and you're around them, they are good people. They try to do what's right. They're friendly. They're kind. They try to reach out to the, to the world to help. And yet their government acts in a completely different way. He says, I can't understand the dichotomy here. And he says, it finally dawned on me is that the American people have no idea what their government is doing. And I think he's I think he's right about that. There are so many people that just uh, go about their business, and when when the government uh, you know refuses to release information about you know the legal justification for killing American citizens, it carries on secret wars. Uh, it has secret budgets. It has these uh, the joint uh, uh, committee, the the JSOC uh, committee. Uh, which is part of the military, uh, unregulated, no oversight. Uh, when these things are happening, the people don't pay attention to it. Then the government can run amok. And I, I'm afraid that's what's happening. But the, one of the things in Veterans for Peace we try to do is to continually bring these issues to the attention of the people and hope that, you know, uh, one of the reasons for our demonstration on drones every Thursday isn't the idea that we're going to put drones away and they're never going to be used again. But part of the reason of being there day in uh, or week in and week out is to raise the consciousness to let people know remember this is being in your name remember that these drones could be a threat to the domestic security of the United States and your privacy and it could uh, cause uh, the way they are used uh, bring about a uh, blowback to the United States again uh, in a ways that we don't want to experience mm -hmm. be aware of what's going on mm -hmm. Definitely. And for those just joining, I'm speaking with Barry Ladendorf of San Diego Veterans for Peace. So we're on the subject of drones. Uh, tell us what the uh, Drone Diego weekend uh, is, is, is about and um, uh, what the different events are, because it's, it's not going to be only at the General Atomics place. Uh, uh, right. Uh, give, give our listeners a bit of details on, on the event. Okay, well, uh, what I can tell you... Um uh, is that this event will cover will begin on uh, Thursday, April the fourth, and I believe it will go through April seventh on uh, uh, Sunday. Uh, April fourth is going to be a uh, what we hope will be a very large demonstration at the uh, General Atomics uh, site in uh, Poway, which is located at Scripps Poway Parkway and General Atomics Way. Uh, the corner there is the uh, General Atomics uh, offices where they assembled the Predator drone. 
And so we're hoping to have a, a people from all over the, the county, the city, uh, people coming from out of state, people coming from different parts of California to join with us uh, in a uh, demonstration to raise the awareness and consciousness of, about drones, about drone warfare, about the use of drones domestically. So we're hoping to get a lot of um, coverage of that. We're encourage people that uh, to come out and join us on April 4th for that. Uh, the following days on uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, a number of events uh, will be happening. There'll be further demonstrations at other locations where uh, there are companies here, and I can't recall exactly where they're going to be. Uh, some of that planning has not been uh, tightened down yet. I know that there's uh, supposed to be a peace train coming from Los Angeles, bringing a number of people down here on Saturday, I believe. We're going to have people presenting workshops on various issues related to uh, drone technology. Uh, speakers uh, will be coming in. Uh, I believe either then or doing the, um, a few days after that, uh, Medea Benjamin is going to be in town. She's a founder of Code Pink and the author of a very good book that I would recommend to your listeners that have it a little more about drones and drone warfare. Uh, there's a book entitled Drone Warfare, Killing Remote Control. Uh, Medea Benjamin uh, is the author of that. It is a, a really great book to read to give you a grounding on the understanding of the elements of drones, uh, how drones are used, uh, issues raised by uh, their use under international law and in the uh, United States um, uh, under, the, under the laws of the United States and the laws of war. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a very good uh, a primer on drone warfare. Uh, this, the events will conclude on um, on Sunday, uh, there'll be more uh, rallies and demonstrations. Um, I don't have uh, all that information in front of me right now, but um, there will be, uh, let's see, I, I guess trying to think of how, how people could get that information out. There may be the a, uh, the website, I think, would be. One thing you can do is go to our website, San Diego Veterans for Peace, and we're going to be putting information on there, and that's SD vfp.org uh, you check in with that uh, check our Facebook page uh, check the uh, uh, San Diego Coalition for Peace and Justice uh, website uh, so uh, it's going to be a big event there should be a lot of media coverage uh, we're going to continue to put out information about that and uh, uh, hopefully it's going to be a uh, well attended uh, weekend mm -hmm. that will raise the consciousness of, of, of the community about what's happening in their name around the, the globe and right here in the United States with the uh, use of drones by Homeland Security, uh, police departments that are wanting to get in on the uh, action. And, you know, questions that we raise is, uh, as you know, Alex, is that what, we're, what we want to do is get oversight and control over this. You know, when if drones are flying domestically, uh, and being used by law enforcement, uh, and they're gathering information. How's that information used? What is going to happen to that? You know, one of the things that, you know, has to disturb people in this country is the gathering of information now um, that we have this uh, ability to, uh, the, as the National uh, Terrorism Center, where one of their two responsibilities I mentioned earlier, one of the responsibilities is to coordinate the um, 
kill list of the Pentagon and the CIA and try to uh, meld them together to see who on those lists should be killed and make recommendations to the president. The second thing they do is to gather uh, domestic information, billions and billions of bits of information about ordinary citizens. And uh, part of that is to, uh, under the Bush administration, that information was required to be held for 180 days and then destroyed. So, uh, you know, there wasn't, when you're getting billions and billions of bits of information on people, uh, a lot of that information is not going to be have time to be uh, kept on the ordinary people. But uh, President Obama has uh, extended the time that that information can be held to up to five years. Wow. So now it's a longer period of time in which to have information on uh, citizens of the United States that are picked up. And how is this going to be used? I mean, where's what information about uh, you is going to be kept and analyzed, and uh, and what kind of a enemies list might you find yourself on, mm-hmm. as we did under the under the Nixon administration? So I think there's uh, you know there's cause for concern here, and I think uh, what we have to do is is be on top of this as citizens. Uh, I forget who said it, but. Uh, one of our, uh, uh, and I can't remember who to attribute this quote to, but I thought it was very a, a very significant quote. It says, of all the offices that we hold, the most important office is the office of citizen. And to exercise that means that you have to take a proactive role in learning about what your government is doing and to take steps to make sure that it is, it is adhering to its principles and ideals. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I, I'm certainly going to be out there, not only as a media person to cover the uh, Drone Diego event, but as a supporter of the cause and and someone who generally wants to uh, see oversight on this. And, and it's a definitely, uh, I would encourage everybody to attend. Very peaceful, fun, and, and informative, uh, uh, you know, type of uh, demonstration. Uh, just you know, just get out there and and nonviolently show show your support for not only yourself because these drones are flying over our skies now but for but so that uh that you don't want people killed in your name and in your tax dollars because that will cause blowback towards you because it's done in your name um so uh i've been speaking with barry ladendorf of san diego veterans for peace uh anything that we haven't touched upon that you would like to get on uh talk about as well as uh the international chapters of, of veterans for peace that you're starting uh, yeah, I, I would mention that. Uh, uh, we have uh, gone international here uh, last uh, year when uh, our bylaws have been changed to allow uh, veterans from other nations to form chapters of Veterans for Peace uh, in uh, joining with us in uh, in the United States here. Uh, veterans for Peace uh, was founded in 1985. Our national headquarters is in St. Louis. We have uh, gosh, I'm thinking in, uh, in excess of 160 chapters around the United States. Uh, we have founded our first uh, college campus chapter uh, here at San Diego City College. Um, our chapter here, uh, Veterans for Peace, uh, was instrumental in uh, helping that uh, chapter get started. And uh, we also had a chance to help with the uh, formation of the first Veterans for Peace foreign chapter, which is Veterans for Peace of London. Uh, ben Griffin, who is the founder there, is a former Special Air Services um, 
member of the British Army who uh, left the Army, uh, discussed with what was happening in Iraq and said he couldn't serve anymore. And um, he ended up, uh, didn't he, in a bookstore in London about a year and a half ago and told him about Veterans for Peace. And he had been looking to try to figure out how to organize veterans in, in uh, the United Kingdom to stand up against war and violence. And he uh, latched on to uh, Veterans for Peace, and uh, we worked together to help get that chapter started. Uh, and he has reached out now to uh, other chapters in Europe, and we uh, I'll be leaving uh, in the 1st of March to go to Ireland to uh, meet with veterans there who are in the process of uh, starting a chapter of Veterans for Peace in Ireland. Uh, so it's pretty exciting to... Uh, to think that uh, we have uh, veterans from around the world um, who are interested. We have uh, had contacts from uh, people in the Philippines and uh, uh, the Republic of South Korea, um, uh, let's see, Norway, uh, Scotland, uh, Germany, Spain. Uh, and you can imagine that uh, I think a powerful impact this could have uh, in future years if you could have around the globe an organization of Veterans for Peace that stands up uh, to their governments and says, we demand that uh, these any conflicts be resolved peacefully, war is not the answer. Make a powerful uh, voice. And I would also uh, say to your listeners out there, even if you're not a veteran, but if you uh, um, take a look at our statement of purpose and uh, agree that what we're doing is, is something that you can buy into uh, and support, and willing to do this in a nonviolent way, which is one of our, is our, our pledge, we welcome you to join Veterans for Peace, even if you're not a veteran. About 20 or 25 percent of our membership, I think, is, is uh, our people who are not veterans, but they are committed to the cause that Veterans for Peace are. And we have just uh, passed a, a resolution or a new bylaw change that now allows our uh, uh, associate members who are not veterans now have voting power. They can vote on uh, elections. They can uh, vote on bylaw changes. So they're taking a much more active role in the organization. So we welcome you if you're a veteran, or even if you're not a veteran. Awesome. Well, thanks. You, thanks again for coming on the show, Barry Ladendorf for, uh, from San Diego Veterans for Peace. It's at sdvfp.org, and, and we look forward to uh, talking about Drone Diego here in the future. Okay, thanks, Alex. Thanks very much uh, for having me on. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And for any of those that missed any part of the episode, the podcasts are available at mediafire.com slash freethoughtradio. Also on iTunes, check out or search for Free Thought and look for Free Thought AAC. You can subscribe for free and download for free there as well. Uh, I'm a member of uh, Veterans for Peace. So is uh, Ralph Nader, uh, Howard Zinn, Daniel Ellsberg, a lot of uh, great people. And again, they do accept non-veteran members. I'm not a veteran. Uh, hopefully not, given that uh, uh, Biden just said Obama's not bluffing over a possible attack of Iran this summer. Yeah, it's not uh, very, very interesting times that we live in. Um, hopefully peace wins first. Uh, otherwise, uh, financially... Uh, morally, uh, the United States is just going down a cliff. Um, and given that we're going to be spreading ourselves so thin with another war, um, we're already spread so thin. Is there going to be uh, use of that selective service document that you're signing? 
Is there going to be a backdoor draft or a full draft? Uh, are they going to include women in that draft? Uh, those are all things we need to think about um, before jumping into war so hastily and uh, actually look behind um, why if the drumming up for war is propaganda or truth. Uh, I'd say the uh, the first uh, answer is probably true for most of the wars we've been engaged in since World War II um, or after that. That was the last war we ever declared, so that just goes to show. So you're listening to KKSM Oceanside AM 1320, Cox Cable Channel 957, and streaming online at palomarcollegeradio.com. You can also listen to this show uh, on the dedicated live page. It's freethoughtmedia.org, and the live page is at freethoughtmedia.org slash live.html. Also has the video page. Uh, you can see the webcam of me uh, and some slideshow stuff, album art of the songs that I'm playing, um, such as the one that's coming up next, uh, War Pigs by Black Sabbath. And then after that, it is Women's History Month, so I want to play some female rockers. Um, Can't Find My Mind by The Cramps with Poison Ivy, uh, wife of uh, singer Lux Interior, the late Lux Interior, and she is the guitar player. So uh, you're listening to KKSM, Oceanside AM 1320, The Radio Revolution. War Pigs by Black Sabbath, and after that, Can't Find My Mind by The Cramps. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Wash my hands. Oh, Lord,
darkness world stops turning Ashes where the body's burning No more war pigs have the power And as God has struck the hour Day of judgment God is calling Underneath the war pigs crawling Begging mercies for the sins Satan laughing spreads his wings Oh Lord
Find My Mind by The Cramps, and obviously for Women's History Month, Poison Ivy on guitar. And before that was War Pigs by Black Sabbath. And, you know, since this the topics of both the guests for tonight's show, which was John Glazer of Antiwar.com and Barry Ladendorf of San Diego Veterans for Peace, um, you know, obviously the subject of war. And this brings me to another a uh, great female rocker, Wendia Williams of the Plasmatics, and this Plasmatics song is called The Day of the Humans is Gone, and it's more about an environmental thing where, uh, hmm, it was in the, this record was made in the 80s, and it was kind of talking about scientists and, and labs kind of messing with the genetics of maggots, and the album's called Maggots the Record, and it eventually... Uh, these maggots grow in size to where basically they, they engulf the entire world and um, they're quite unstoppable. But I think this is also ties into war, even though I don't think that we that nuclear war would happen. Even in war, we're still killing off people that don't need to be killed. We're putting people to kill people that shouldn't be killing those people um, that shouldn't be killing each other. Um, that if neither of them were there, if the troops were home, that those that person shooting back at them would never shoot back at them, and uh, thus you know lives would spare. We shouldn't be killing our own fellow human beings here. That's not very human. That's not very human. That's we call ourselves a civilized country, yet we go around uh, you know uh, just killing people. That's not civilized. That's 
That's, you know, animalistic. That's barbaric. And we call ourselves the civilized nation, the shining light on the hill. Um, maybe we, we used to in some ways, uh, in other ways, definitely not uh, with slavery and everything like that. But our founders did say uh, foreign policy of friendship, honest friendship, uh, commerce, uh, and entangling alliances with none. Does that sound like what we have today? Well, if it isn't, we're just killing ourselves off needlessly for wars that are not in our defensive interests, not at all, based on lies and propaganda so that people can make money and also protect, such as the Strait of Hormuz, protect giant profits for a trade route. Is that really what you want to die for? Uh, are you going to die for less freedoms with the NDAA and Patriot Act and the war on drugs, highest incarceration rate? Are you going to die for ExxonMobil or BP or Lockheed Martin or General Atomics? That's what you're signing up for, uh, at least nowadays. Uh, so we better uh, wake up. Uh, and I know it's not uh, it's not us; it's the government. You know, the government isn't representative of us. The point, the the idea is to try to educate others. And hopefully it becomes a critical mass, like with the Vietnam War, where eventually everybody's, you know, fed up, and they say, not a mass, and uh, we can prevent us from killing each other uh, and really engaging in, in barbarism. So this is the day, day of the humans is gone by plasmatics. Hopefully that never comes true. And then after that, jealousy by death, because I am stoked for the Death to All tour. Check it out. It's to benefit a musician's charity for those without health care. Death to Alter in memory of Chuck Schuldiner of Death. Be right back. KKSM, The Radio Revolution.
Jealousy by death. And before that, the day of the humans is gone by Plasmatics. And again, for Women's History Month, great female singer, Wendy O. Williams. Check her out. Her story is awesome. There's a pretty good documentary made about the Plasmatics. Um, I, I, I was available on Netflix. That's how I watched it. Um, up next is Electric Eye by Judas Priest, because we're on the subject of foreign policy and surveillance. The surveillance state is one of the tenants, the uh, the uh, crutches, if you will, of the tripod of foreign policy, um, at least, you know, against its own people. Um, and then after that, Torture Tactics by Nuclear Assault uh, from their album Handle With Care, and the, and the uh, album art is, you know, the Earth with the stamp Handle With Care on it. And uh, Torture Tactics is, of course, about torture. And John Brennan, this new head of the CIA, was the champion of torture under the Bush administration and now uh, appointed by Obama to lead the CIA. Gosh, that's scary. <laughs> and that ties into Electric Eye, too. So Electric Eye by Judas Priest actually just reissued um, with um 20th or 30th anniversary edition of Screaming for Vengeance. Um classic priest song so we'll be right back after this you're listening to kksm am 1320 the radio revolution electric eye by judas priest and then after that torture tactics by nuclear assault
The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and not of KKSM, Palomar College, its staff, the board of directors, or station management. You're listening to KKSM, Palomar College Radio. Plug the radio in and stand in front of your bathroom mirror. You're part of the radio revolution. Can't you hear the wind calling? Little Miss, Little Miss, can't be wrong. We're free. We are the future. KKSM. Welcome back, and it is 8.30 time for your KKSM News Brief. Senator Rand Paul filibusters the John Brennan nomination. Senator Rand Paul started a filibuster of the nomination of CIA Director John Brennan. The Obama administration initially responded to Senator Paul's uh, concerns over uh, constitutional rights uh, in regards to assassination of American citizens uh, without charge or trial. Uh, vaguely saying that under a hypothetical circumstance, the president might be able to assassinate American citizen if maybe it was a national security issue. Uh, saying that, uh, basically they're saying, well, we don't think it could happen, but in a very hypothetical maybe situation, yeah, it probably could, could happen if they were considered an enemy combatant. Of course, uh, nonviolent political protesters can easily be lumped into that category. Given the government's treatment of the Ron Paul revolution, the Occupy Wall Street movement, uh, so the definition of Americans as enemy combatants is quite broad and arbitrary and can be used uh, to quell political enemies a la Richard Nixon. Senator um, Paul was backed up by the ACLU, and had bipartisan support and bipartisan opposition, <laughs> but that again, that didn't uh, the the bipartisan support, including from ACLU, didn't stop the military-industrial complex propagandists on Fox and MSNBC, as well as uh, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and other senators from both parties tearing Paul apart. While I disagree vehemently with Rand Paul on many things, uh, from his view on social issues to support for the National Defense Authorization Act to his support for sanctions on Iran, which is a declaration of war, and his support for Mitt Romney instead of Gary Johnson or even his father earlier on in the primary um, when he still had a chance to maybe at least make an upset, uh, his support for Mitt Romney and, and a Republican Party so corrupt that they literally scripted the Republican National Convention. Uh, there's footage of the teleprompter that John Boehner is reading off of that they actually pre-decided what the number of delegates from a certain state would be basically to kick out the Ron Paul delegates. Um, so uh, that and that screwed over his father and his ardent support. And But I think his stand for civil liberties in this one instance is very commendable and obviously very important. Me personally, uh, this may be a bit of an overstretch, so don't take it too hard. Take it with a grain of salt, but I do not care about American citizens. We need to focus on the international human rights abuses committed by our drones dropping bombs on innocent civilians in other countries that we have not declared war on. Anything that happens to Americans because of drones after that is merely mission creep from that original thing of other countries having it. People in other countries are no less of people no, I'm not a nationalistic, you know, uh, type of a person. So I'm not going to say that, oh, you live across this arbitrary borderline. Oh, you're less of a person. I don't care if you get killed. I think it would have been way, way cooler if Senator Paul would have 
just gone the whole shebang, the whole nine yards, the full Monty, and just go, you know address the international human rights abuses um, and addressing the international violations of human rights abroad will stop the drone program from coming home and being used equally upon us in the same manner. In state, in, in state news, an earthquake hit Southern California this morning. Uh, a series of small earthquakes centered in the lightly populated desert-rattled parts of Southern California Monday, today, uh, the U.S. Geological Survey reported. Most of the quakes, including one measuring 4.7 magnitude, were centered 14 miles southwest of La Quinta, California, and 23 miles south of Palm Springs, California, but were felt over a wide area of Southern California. I felt it. <laughs> the uh, quake occurred within 20 minutes of each other. There were no reports of injury or damage, and uh, yes, I was holding on to my Toxic Avenger the Musical uh, glass mugs, make sure, making sure they don't fall. Interviewing Lloyd Kaufman this week, by the way. Um, in national news, the Air Force removes drone strike info from their website. And this is from Foreign Policy Magazine, and um, I, 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 don't, I don't quote the news sources, you know, unless, you know, especially because I copy and paste some of these uh, texts because they're well-written. But I usually go to Reason247, uh, RT, uh, Al Jazeera, ACLU, Antiwar.com, uh, other different kind of libertarian and progressive news sites for uh, news headlines because I don't go to the mainstream because uh, I don't trust them. Uh, but this is from Foreign Policy Magazine. Quietly and without much notice, the Air Force has reversed its policy of publishing s statistics on drone strikes in Afghanistan as the debate of drone warfare hits a fever pitch in Washington. In addition, it has erased previously published drone strike statistics from its website. In other national news, the ACLU launches an investigation into police militarization. The ACLU will submit inquiries into how many police departments around the country uh, have SWAT teams, how SWAT teams are used, how often, for what reasons, what weapons they use, how often citizens are injured or killed in SWAT raids, and how the big guns are funded. They will also investigate who has drones, GPS tracking, and if the money for such equipment comes with strings attached to follow programs by the Pentagon or the Department of Homeland Security or for the war on drugs. Quote, we've known for a while now that American neighborhoods are increasingly being policed by cops armed with the weapons and tactics of war, said Kara Dansky, senior counsel at the ACLU Center for Justice, which is coordinating the investigation. The aim of this investigation is to find out just how pervasive this is and to what extent federal funding is incentivizing the trend. In other news, alleged spokesperson for Anonymous to spend a year in jail without trial. The alleged computer criminal Barrett Brown will spend a year in jail due to the delay of the trial, which has already been delayed for six months. Brown has never spoke of himself as a spokesperson or leader of Anonymous. Uh, federal agents even tried to charge his mother with conspiracy. In other news, Whole Foods will label all GMO products by 2018. U.S. and Canadian Whole Foods uh, food market outlets uh, will will uh, will label will bring labels to any GMO products sold in their stores. Though Whole Foods markets and their store brand 365 uh, are are usually genetically engineered uh, uh, foods free. 
and many of them have gotten the non-GMO verified label, the or USD organic label, uh, which connotates non-GMO, or both. Though shopping at Whole Foods still requires being a conscious consumer, and their effort to label GMOs will not only increase the knowledge of the consumer, but will help lead the way for others to label GMOs, because when people see that on the, on the, on the box, they're not going to buy it. That's going to shift the market away uh, from GMO foods, which is funded by the government, uh, both the bioengineering technology and the farming itself. And uh, they had suppressed their support for GMO labeling uh, initiatives like Prop 37s and one to come in the future. In other national news, senators press Attorney General Holder on Aaron Swartz. The Attorney General denied any misconduct. Swartz committed suicide after facing a 35-year sentence for making information that should be public, public. He was also greatly surveilled by the FBI, Secret Service, and the Department of Justice for his nonviolent computer activism. Aaron Swartz's suicide is evidence enough of misconduct. In other national news, Florida House Committee unanimously passes anti-drone law. The bill limits law enforcement uh, ability to use drones only if they have obtained search warrants. In other news, the Libertarian Party gains permanent ballot status in the District of Columbia. Presidential candidate Gary Johnson and candidate for delegate of D.C. Bruce Majors got enough votes to guarantee ballot status and formal recognition of the Libertarian Party in District of Columbia uh, voter uh, uh, guides and, and other uh, related materials. In other news, Clinton asked the Supreme Court to overturn the Defense of Marriage Act that he signed into law himself when president. Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act as president, which established that gay marriage was illegal federally. He is now asking to the Supreme Court to overturn it. So only stand up for things out of office, usually after it's too late. Right. In other news, the Department of Homeland Security uh, drones are designed to eavesdrop on Americans. Break out your copies of 1984 because the pages have just come out to life, if they haven't already. Surveillance drones belonging to the Department of Homeland Security have the ability to intercept communications from phones, making it easier for the government to wiretap phones without warrants, and they can also identify individuals whether and whether that individual is armed or not. A drone almost collides with a commercial airliner. Uh, I'm going to mimic the 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 uh, the uh, transmission between the the ground control and the pilot. Uh, JFK air traffic control to Al Alitalia flight 608. Uh, what do you see? Alitalia to JFK. Uh, we saw a drone, a drone aircraft. That that's pretty <laughs> that's pretty bad. I'm trying to not be funny here. Uh, JFK to Alitalia. What altitude did you see the aircraft? Alitalia to JFK. About 1,500 feet. Close, uh, quote, transmission. When Alitalia Flight 608 was on its final approach, about three miles from the JFK runway 31R, the pilot saw a black drone powered by four propellers and about three feet in diameter. According to the pilot's account of the sighting, the drone flew within 200 feet of the plane full of passengers. The FAA is the agency that is in charge of air traffic and is also in charge of adopting 
over 30,000 new drones into American airspace over the next few years to not have things like this happen. The FAA will not acknowledge the owner of the drone. So in America, the war on terror with its drones uh, used domestically and overseas, uh, you have a bigger chance of a drone taking down a plane than a terrorist attack taking down a plane. Down is up. And local police are getting tanks from the Department of Homeland Security. Luke Rutkowski of We Are Change attempted to confront DHS Secretary Janet Napolitano over such armored vehicles. The question was ignored and she walked away into some other room. MSNBC then went on a smear campaign to call We Are Change a right-wing extremist group when they are certainly not right-wing at all. They are uh, progressive libertarians who are famous for ambushing public officials with journalism and on-the-spot interviews. They confronted Lord Jacob Rothschild and even talked to Lupe Fiasco about what he thinks about the Occupy movement, which We Are Change also supports. Keene, New Hampshire, had received a Bearcat armored vehicle from the Department of Homeland Security, and the city's most violent crime is theft. And the city council lied to the DHS about their concerns of possible terrorism in their town in order to secure the big bucks, cha-ching, for their police department. They admit it was about the money. Dollar dollar bill, y'all. And their, their cops would be excited over such a toy. Ish. A shame that money and power will mow down the people with armored vehicles. A Detroit cop uh, faces charges for, ten, for killing a 10-year-old girl. Ayanna Jones was sleeping on a couch in her, in her family's first floor apartment. Officers were searching for a murder suspect when they threw a flash grenade and stormed into that apartment. Officer Joseph Weekly shot the girl in the head, claiming an accidental firing of the gun. She's dead now. But those are, those are the kind of mistakes that police are, are allowed to make. And, you know, the public doesn't really care. But Chris Dorner happens and, oh, you know, we, we got a media makes a big uh, two-week-long memorial on these cops and they get to burn Chris Dorner alive. Why don't they burn Officer Weekly alive for taking an innocent 10-year-old girl's life? Because badges grant extra rights and impunity? I don't think so. This is very, very, very disgusting. I'm going to save the rest of the uh, national news headlines for later. Get on to international news here. Um, Nelson Mandela leaves the hospital. The 94-year-old civil rights hero returned home after spending the night at a hospital for a medical exam. In other international news, North Korea ends the armistice, and the U.S. and South Korea are engaging in military exercises. So we have never left Korea since the war. This is 50 years of blowback coming to fruition. As bad as North Korea is, having our troops over there for so long surely agitates the beast, where if we were not there, it would not. Suicide bombers uh, have strike Afghanistan during the Hegel visit. Two bombings killing 18 occurred on Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel's first visit to Afghanistan. Isn't it a sign that we should leave the weather here in San Marcos, where KKSM wonderfully broadcasts out of his 54 degrees and traffic. Uh, there are 
no uh, problem areas. So, broadcasting live from KKSM, I'm Alex Fiddle with your KKSM News. Now for Women's History Month, some female rockers. Moon Unit Zappa made her debut on Frank Zappa's song, Valley Girl. On the album, uh, Ship Arriving Too Late to Save a Drowning Witch. And then after that, a song called Mela by Julie Slick. And she is the bass player for Adrian Ballou's trio. And this is her solo stuff. Very awesome progressive stuff. And uh, again, Valley Girl by Frank Zappa. And then after that, Mela by Julie Slick. KKSM, The Radio Revolution.
things that like stick in your mouth are so gross. You gotta get saliva all over them. But like, I don't know, it's gonna be cool, you know, I'll buy some like see my smile. It'll be like really cool. Except my like teeth are like too small. But no biggie. So awesome. It's like too really you new. Know? Well, I'm not like really ugly or anything. It's just like, I don't know. <gasps> you know me, I'm like into the like the clean stuff, like Pac-Man and like I don't know. Like my mother like makes me do the dishes. It's like so gross. Like all the stuff like sticks to the plate. And it's like it's like somebody else's food. You know, it's like grody, grody to the max. I'm sure it's like really nauseating. Like bark out, gag me with the spoon. Gross. I am sure. <laughs> totally. <laughs> by Julie Slick and before that Valley Girl by Frank Zappa and Julie Slick of course you know great female bass player from Adrian Ballou's trio and Moon Unit Zappa the daughter of the great Frank Zappa getting down to the last minutes of the show if you missed any part of the episode my guests for tonight were John Glazer the editor of antiwar.com and Barry Leidendorf of San Diego Veterans for Peace mediafire.com slash freethoughtradio is where you can find the podcast for free or Simply go on iTunes and subscribe, search for Free Thought, and look for Free Thought AAC, all free there as well. A few of the news headlines I didn't get to before. The Ninth Circuit Court limits laptop searches at border checkpoints, especially since the DHS swallowed Border Patrol. Rule of law and due process seem to disappear at the border, unfortunately. But now agents must at least have reasonable suspicion to search your laptop. John Brennan was sworn in on a constitution lacking a Bill of Rights. <laughs> Fitting. The U.S. Uh, government is censoring more pu public records than ever before. The Navy is reducing drug war efforts in Latin America. Finally, the war on drugs which is exported to Latin America in order to control puppet dictators and lay the ground for regime change is being scaled back slightly due to budget cuts to the Navy. 
though the CIA and DEA may still engage in covert efforts, especially since the amount of money the DEA gets through civil asset forfeiture doubles the budget they get from Congress. And Senator Lindsey Graham on indefinite detention? Shut up. You don't get a lawyer. And for those driving uh, in North County, San Diego, there are no uh, problem areas for traffic. So the final two songs I want to play are Spontaneous by Toxic and War Ensemble by Slayer, uh, both having to do with war. You're listening to KKSM 80, uh, AM 1320, The Radio Revolution. My name is Alex Fiddle, host of Free Thought Radio here, freethoughtmedia.org and facebook.com slash freethoughtradio. See you next week. My guest is Ethan Thampy, director of Americans for Forfeiture Reform, again, dealing with civil asset forfeiture, the government's ability to take your money without charging you with a crime, legalized theft, spontaneous by toxic, and then war ensemble by Slayer. KKSM, the radio revolution. Thanks, everybody, for listening.
Broadcasting live from the campus at Palomar College, you're listening to KKSM 1320 AM Oceanside, where new music lives. KKSM and 1320 Oceanside. 